Hello, everyone. On behalf of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, thank you for attending tonight's program, Nutrition and IBD, Making Healthy Choices. My name is Laura Wingate, and I'm the Vice President of Patient Professional Services for CCFA. Tonight's program is supported by educational grants from Genentech, Shire, Inc., and it is also sponsored through, uh, supported through sponsorship from Intera Health and Sigma Tau Pharmaceuticals, Inc. It is now my pleasure to be introducing our speakers for tonight's program, Dr. Lindsay Albenberg and Colleen Webb. Dr. Albenberg is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and an attending physician in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She is a research within the Center for Pediatric Inflammatory Bowel Disease at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. One of our key research interests in response of the gut microbiota to dietary modification in inflammatory bowel disease. Dr. Albenberg contributed to the literature in several areas related to gut microbiota in health and disease, including work describing the relationship between diet and the microbiota and inflammatory bowel disease. Dr. Albenberg serves on the IBD Committee for the North American Society for Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, NASPGAN, and in 2013-14, she received the NASPGAN Fellow to Faculty Transition Award in IBD Research. She has also received funding through the Broad Foundation at CCFA, has lectured internationally and nationally on the topic of diet and the gut microbiota and inflammatory bowel disease, and she is a spokesperson for the Get Your Full Course website and program, which is a website provided by Janssen and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation designed to provide patients with IBD accurate information on diet. Colleen Webb is a registered and certified dietitian for the Robert Center for Inflammatory Bowel Disease at Weill Cornell Medical Center in New York. She is also a certified lifetime eating and performance therapist. Colleen is the president of Nutrition and Health Expert. She has received a Master in Science degree in Clinical Nutrition and Dietetics at the New York University and has published several articles on the topic of nutrition and diet through health-focused websites such as everydayhealth.com and Shape Magazine. She is a regular lecturer at the medical professional meetings providing education on topics within nutrition. Our first speaker will be Dr. Albenberg. Thank you for joining us, and it is now my pleasure to turn the program over to you. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here tonight. So tonight we will discuss the importance of diet and nutrition in inflammatory bowel diseases. We will review data on the role of diet in IBD. We will review general healthy eating principles and also give suggestions for diet during a flare and we will discuss eating outside your home at holidays and gatherings. So to start, we'll talk a little bit about IBD and digestion in general. So when the small intestine is inflamed, as it often is with Crohn's disease, the intestine becomes much less able to fully digest and absorb the nutrients from food. This is one reason why people with Crohn's disease become malnourished, in addition to just not having much of an appetite. 
also incompletely digested foods that reach the colon without being absorbed can cause symptoms such as increased gas, bloating, and even diarrhea. In ulcerative colitis, on the other hand, only the colon is inflamed and the small intestine continues to work normally. Because of this, patients with ulcerative colitis are less likely to become malnourished. However, an inflamed colon does not reabsorb water properly and this can result in diarrhea and sometimes even dehydration. Now, it's important to recognize that genetics account for the development of IBD to a lesser degree than environmental factors. And the two major environmental factors to which the gut is exposed are diet and the gut microbiota, or the trillions of organisms that live within our guts. Now, as humans, we have evolved to live in a mutualistic relationship with our gut microbes. So we provide our gut microbes a dark and warm place to live and also a source of nutrition. And in turn, our gut microbes have many important functions to us, including to actually help us with digestion. And it's well recognized now that many diseases, including IBD, are associated with an abnormal or unbalanced composition of gut microbes. Several studies have demonstrated differences in the composition of the gut microbiota in patients with inflammatory bowel disease as compared to healthy people. This figure comes from a compilation of studies and it demonstrates the amounts of specific types of bacteria in the colon. So each color is a specific type of bacteria in the colon. The panel on the left represents healthy individuals and the panel on the right represents people with IBD. And you can see the difference in the color pattern, which suggests that the microbiota in people who have IBD is different than healthy individuals. So what about diet? Well, this is the overall way that we are viewing things. Now, we know that people with IBD have an abnormal composition of the gut microbiota, as I showed you in the previous slide, and there have been also multiple studies that have shown that diet has a major impact on the composition of the gut microbiota. For example, there have been studies that have looked at gut bacteria in babies who are breastfed versus bottle-fed, and then there have also been many studies of people of all ages who live in different parts of the world and eat different diets and have different compositions of the gut microbiota. And because we know of these two connections, it seems logical to think that diet may be involved in the development of IBD and may serve as a potential therapy for IBD. Now we know that diet is very important to patients who have IBD. Um, and that is obviously why you are all here tonight. We know that patients with IBD frequently identify dietary components that cause increased symptoms, and we know that up to 75% of patients with IBD follow a restricted diet based on foods that they feel they are intolerant of, that they feel maybe lead to worsening of the disease. This figure at the bottom 
is a study of over 200 patients with IBD in the UK. And as part of this study, patients were surveyed in regards to foods that were reported to worsen their IBD symptoms. And you can see here the major categories of foods that were felt to worsen these patient symptoms. However, the one challenge here is that we know that improvement in symptoms does not always equal a true reduction in inflammation. And interestingly, a study sponsored by the CCFA that was done prior to the study I just showed you had demonstrated really no consistent dietary pattern in patients with IBD. So there were some patients who reported that fruits and non-leafy vegetables were most likely to make their symptoms better, and then other people who said that fruits and non-leafy vegetables were most likely to worsen their symptoms. So this suggests that reported symptoms may be from food intolerances rather than true inflammation from IBD. So you can see that the topic of IBD can be pretty confusing, and so we'll try tonight to shed some light on this topic. So does a person's diet affect whether or not he or she is more or less likely to develop IBD? There have actually been several studies that have examined the associations between dietary patterns and the development of IBD, and a recent review of the literature concluded that diets that were high in total fats, polyunsaturated fatty acids, omega-6 fatty acids, and meat were associated with an increased risk of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. High fiber and fruit intakes were associated with a decreased risk of Crohn's disease, and high vegetable intake was associated with a decreased ulcerative colitis risk. So what about research studies that look at diet in patients who are already diagnosed with IBD? So unfortunately, we have very limited studies, and we definitely need to do more research in this area. Most of the studies out there are small with anecdotal outcomes, and we do have some evidence that diet may impact IBD, but still, research needs to show how. So is this through effects on the immune system, through changes in gut bacteria, uh, something else totally different, or perhaps a combination of factors? So I'll start with a couple of studies in animal models of IBD. There is a genetically altered mouse that we can actually breed in laboratories called the IL-10 knockout mouse, where the animals develop a disorder that looks very similar for, to IBD. Um, there's really no animal model that can truly replicate human IBD, and so this poses a challenge. But I think there is some information that we can learn from animal models. And this slide comes from work which really highlights the potential importance of the Western diet in increasing inflammation in IBD. A group of scientists found that consumption of milk fat altered bile acid composition. This led to the expansion of a particular type of bacteria in the colon of these animals, and that led to an exacerbation of their colitis. This is another recent study that some of you may have heard of, 
where dietary emulsifiers were recently shown to increase the incidence of colitis, also in that same animal model of IBD, the IL-10 knockout mouse. This paper was recently published in Nature, and carboxymethylcellulose and polysorbate 80 were given to these animals at concentrations typical of human consumption, and it was shown to change the composition of the gut microbiota and also increase their pro-inflammatory potential. Now, polysorbate 80 and carboxymethylcellulose are examples of emulsifiers that are used in food processing. There are many others. There are hundreds of these compounds. Many of them have not been studied, but uh, just for your knowledge, emulsifiers are frequently added to processed foods to extend their shelf life and to add texture to the food. So what about studies of diet in uh, humans who have IBD? So unfortunately, as I mentioned before, these studies are somewhat limited and definitely more research is needed in this area. The studies generally focus on three categories. So elimination of food, like exclusion diets, the addition of anti-inflammatory substances or prebiotics, like omega-3s, curcumin, and inulin. And then I put enteral nutritional therapy in its own category because really this is the only dietary therapy that has been rigorously tested and it's been shown to have a direct influence on inflammation. And we'll talk about this a little bit further. So enteral nutritional therapy is a therapy which has been utilized for nearly four decades. It's primarily used for the treatment of Crohn's disease and it involves the use of a specific enteral formula as nutritional therapy. So literally replacing real food with medical grade formulas. The formula can be taken orally, but frequently they're administered through a feeding tube because it's difficult for patients to tolerate the amount of formula that's required orally. Enteral nutritional therapy can be done exclusively where 100% of the calories are given for a defined period of time, or it can be done in a partial fashion where 80 to 90% of the calories come from the formula and the rest of a person's calories come from regular whole food. In fact, if you were to be diagnosed with Crohn's disease today in certain parts of the world, exclusive enteral nutritional therapy would likely be first-line treatment. The traditional protocol that's used in most parts of the world is exclusive, as I mentioned, where 100% of the calories come from the formula. This is done to induce remission for about 4 to 12 weeks, and it can be done orally or through a feeding tube. And then to maintain remission, cycles of exclusive enteral nutrition or exclusive formula at 4 weeks per cycle can be repeated every 3 to 4 months or patients can be transitioned to medical therapy, and typically this would be with an immunomodulator. We use quite a bit of enteral nutritional therapy at my institution, and we follow a less restrictive protocol where patients are able to eat some real food, and we have published and shown this protocol to be effective. So does enteral nutritional therapy work? We do have good evidence that enteral nutritional therapy works, and perhaps one of the most promising studies that looked at induction of remission was published by our Italian colleagues, 
And this was done in children who have Crohn's disease where they essentially took children who were newly diagnosed with Crohn's and they assigned them at random order to receive either enteral nutritional therapy with formula or corticosteroids like prednisone. After 10 weeks of the therapy, they looked at clinical remission, so how were patients feeling by a disease activity score that is very common in studies of pediatric IBD, and they also looked at whether or not there had been healing of the tissue by performing endoscopy before the therapy and at the end of the 10 weeks. So what they found was that there was clinical improvement in both groups. So you can see here the enteral nutrition group is in red and the corticosteroid or prednisone group is in blue. And this is not surprising as we know that prednisone is a medication that will frequently make patients feel better. But what was very interesting was that healing of the GI tract was actually much more common in the group receiving the nutritional therapy as compared to the steroid therapy. So is there a special diet for IBD? Well, the answer with the exception of enteral nutritional therapy, which is effective for the treatment of certain patients with Crohn's disease, is no. Otherwise, there really are no special diets for IBD. However, dietary modifications may help with symptoms. Several diets are available on the Internet, and if you Google diet and IBD, as you are all well aware, you'll have thousands of hits, and there will be many diets that are advertised specifically for managing IBD, sometimes even curing IBD, uh, but these diets have not been proven scientifically and benefits have not been seen in formal studies. And so it's very important whenever a dietary change is considered to talk to your doctor about your questions. There have been a few small studies of interesting exclusion diets in IBD that have been published lately which I do think are interesting and worth mentioning and may lead to the development of dietary therapies in the future. However, they are not ready for prime time and definitely we need to do larger studies. So this was a very interesting study out of Japan which asked the question, can a semi-vegetarian diet prevent relapse of Crohn's disease? So what they did was they looked at adult patients who have Crohn's disease who were already in remission. So either they were medically in remission or they had just had a surgery to induce remission. And they were only treated after they were in remission with a 5-ASA medication, and that's like Pintasa or Azacol, after remission was achieved. All of these patients were prescribed a semi-vegetarian diet. And this was a traditional Japanese semi-vegetarian diet where they were only allowed to eat meat once every two weeks and fish once a week. Otherwise, the diet was vegetarian. It included milk and dairy products, egg, yogurt, vegetables, fruits, legumes, and potatoes, as well as brown rice, miso soup, pickled vegetables, and green tea. And then what they did is they followed these, pa these patients over two years, and at the end of the two years, about half of the patients had continued the semi-vegetarian diet and the other half had just given up and they had quit and gone back to their regular omnivorous diet. And what they found was that the patients who remained on the semi-vegetarian diet were less likely to relapse during that two-year period of time. 
Again, this was a very small study with only 20 patients, and it needs to be repeated before we can utilize this approach in clinical practice. And then in a more recent study by our Israeli colleagues, they found that a combination of partial enteral nutritional therapy plus a restricted diet could induce remission and lead to healing of the tissue in up to 70% of pediatric patients in this study, 70% uh, of pediatric patients with Crohn's disease. So what they did was they allowed these patients to take 50% of their calories from the formula and then the other 50% of the calories came from a diet which restricted many different foods, including gluten, dairy products, gluten-free baked goods, animal fat, processed meats, products containing emulsifiers, canned goods, and all packaged foods. So I just want to touch briefly on dietary fiber because I think this is a really interesting topic. For years, the recommendation has been a low residue or low roughage diet for IBD, so to not worsen diarrhea or cause increased symptoms of gas, bloating, abdominal pain, or lead to an obstruction. However, given that there is some evidence that I shared with you that high-fiber diets may decrease the risk of developing IBD, is this the right course of action? And we know that dietary fiber does have some helpful effects. It has beneficial effects on GI tract function. And dietary fiber also allows the production of short-chain fatty acids by our gut bacteria, which have been shown to be anti-inflammatory in people who have IBD. But still today, most IBD patients are advised to reduce their fiber consumption. So in 2011, Wedlake and colleagues what they did is they looked at all of the studies where fiber was actually supplemented in patients with IBD as an attempt to treat the disease. And what they found was that there was really no effect of supplementation of dietary fiber on improvement in disease in 12 studies of Crohn's disease, possibly a weak effect of ulcerative colitis. But importantly, there was no evidence that fiber intake should be restricted. So fiber did not seem to be harmful. And so in general, I am encouraging my patients to eat fiber with the exception of when they have a known stricture. And also certain patients who have ostomies may need to monitor the amount of fiber in the diet. I next want to just briefly touch on medical foods. So medical foods are foods which are formulated to be consumed or administered enterally or in the gut under the supervision of a physician and intended for the specific dietary management of a disease, there are multiple products out there that are considered medical foods, including the formulas that we prescribe for enteral nutritional therapy in Crohn's disease and also other nutritional therapies such as probiotics. But these are different from FDA-approved drugs and dietary supplements, and they should be administered under medical supervision. So it's important to talk to your physician about these. And then probiotics are actually an example of medical foods. These are live microorganisms that can improve the balance of good versus bad bacteria. The evidence for probiotics in Crohn's disease and in ulcerative colitis are mixed. Some studies show improvement and other studies do not show improvement. The one area where probiotics seem to be helpful is in the setting of pouchitis in people who have ulcerative colitis and have a J pouch. 
But otherwise, we need larger and better studies. And again, it's important to tell your doctor everything that you are taking. Okay, so I know that this is a lot of information. So what do I tell my patients? So I discuss with my patients that enteral nutritional therapy is an effective therapy for certain patients with IBD, specifically Crohn's disease. And then I also give them some other general messages. I believe based on the literature in red meat in moderation, Based on the literature, I also believe that the typical Western diet is probably not good, so I tell my patients to try to follow the anti-Western diet, so avoiding emulsifiers, foods that have preservatives, and foods that have a long shelf life as much as possible. Obviously, this can be difficult, particularly um, in the pediatric population, but as much as possible and within reason. I do think fiber may be beneficial, as I said, with the exception of in those certain situations. I do think that less restrictive exclusion diets may be future therapies, and then Colleen will talk about uh, adequate vitamin D levels and maintaining adequate vitamin D levels. And then lastly, because I am a pediatrician, um, just a few thoughts on considering diet in children with IBD. So we know that up to a quarter of patients with IBD are diagnosed in the pediatric age group. And it does seem that children experience more nutritional complications of their disease, including growth failure, delayed puberty, um, risk of osteoporosis, anemia, and vitamin and mineral deficiencies. And so I recommend an initial assessment by a dietitian who has experience with IBD patients and then follow up with that dietitian as needed and as recommended. I also recommend close monitoring of height velocity, body mass index, and Tanner stage, which is a stage that we use to assess physical pubertal development, and referral to our endocrinology colleagues if needed. And then again, I do recommend vitamin D monitoring and also a baseline bone density or DEXA scan. Um, and if that is abnormal, it needs to be monitored closely um, potentially vitamin D or calcium may need to be supplemented and it needs to be repeated. So that concludes my portion and I will now hand it over to Colleen Webb. Thanks Dr. Aldenberg, wonderful presentation and thank you to the CCFA for inviting me to present on one of my favorite topics. So I'll be presenting for the next 20 minutes or so and we'll start here with risk for malnutrition. There are a number of reasons why someone with inflammatory bowel disease might be at greater risk for malnutrition. Among these reasons, of course, include poor appetite, possibly due to active inflammation, since inflammation suppresses the appetite, maybe due to fear of eating, food restrictions, intolerances, malabsorption, and trouble breaking down food or digesting food can also contribute to malnutrition. So this is especially relevant for people with Crohn's disease. The small bowel is where we break down and absorb our food. So really important for somebody with Crohn's to know what part of your GI tract is affected. And as far as for people with ulcerative colitis, if you have a really rapid motility, then food might not have enough time to actually get absorbed. Of course, symptoms are another reason for poor appetite, malnutrition, fear of eating, and Certain IVD medications can inhibit both the absorption and metabolism of certain nutrients, and we will review those in some upcoming slides. So IVD meds contribute to higher nutrient needs as does inflammation and history of bowel resections. 
Okay, so let's go ahead and take a look at some of those common nutrient deficiencies, starting with ulcerative colitis. So someone taking sulfasalazine or methotrexate, and this really applies to both Crohn's or UC, can be at an increased risk of folate deficiency. And also folate tends to be low anyhow because folate is found in a lot of harder-to-digest foods. Folate's important for a variety of reasons. Um, at one, it's really important for synthesizing new cells. So you can imagine if you are actively inflamed and your damaged tissues are constantly trying to repair themselves, then you'll, folate will be very important. People with ulcerative colitis also tend to lose electrolytes like magnesium, potassium, through chronic diarrhea, so very important to eat foods rich in these nutrients uh, and possibly consider even an oral rehydration solution during those times. And really, the nutrient deficiency that always is top of mind when I meet with somebody with ulcerative colitis is iron. So we lose iron through blood, and bleeding is quite common during UC flares. And of course, women of childbearing age want to pay extra attention to this as well. So moving on to Crohn's, you'll see a bit of a longer list here of common nutrient deficiencies. And that's because, remember, most nutrient absorption takes place in the small bowel. So vitamin B12 deficiency is very common in people with Crohn's disease of the ileum, or if they've had a resection, which is involved the ileum. And these patients often do require vitamin B12 injections. And some other contributing factors to B12 deficiency include small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and chronic use of acid-suppressing medications. So we've already reviewed the importance of folate. Uh, besides the medications that can affect its absorption and metabolism, folate is absorbed in the jejunum, and therefore people with inflammation in this middle part of the small bowel may not be absorbing it. People with Crohn's might also be low in fat-soluble vitamins, uh, including vitamin A, vitamin D, vitamin E, and vitamin K, uh, secondary to inflammation throughout the small bowel and also due to fat malabsorption. And similar to ulcerative colitis, chronic diarrhea and also in this case vomiting can lead to electrolyte disturbances as can inflammation. So labs should certainly be monitored for all of these important minerals uh, like magnesium and potassium. And zinc, sometimes I think zinc is a little forgotten about, but zinc is incredibly important for the immune system and also wound healing. Uh, and it can be low for a variety of reasons, including excessive losses, inflammation, uh, and removal of parts of the small bowel. And as far as calcium goes, calcium has a whole slide unto itself, so we'll talk about it in just a moment. So here is a list of common food sources that can help prevent these nutrient deficiencies. And you can really review this on your own and use it as a guide, but I just want to make a few points. Vitamin B12 is found primarily in animal products, so vegetarians often do have to supplement, and vegans almost always have to supplement. We are going to review some calcium-rich foods besides soy and dairy. And... For those of you who hate bananas, bananas are not the only source of potassium. Uh, oranges, tomatoes, potatoes, avocados are all really great sources. So let's talk a little bit about dietary supplements. Um, as Dr. Albenberg said, I really do strongly encourage people to talk to their doctor or their dietitian about supplements. A multivitamin is not a bad idea given that uh, you have higher nutrient needs and, and dietary restrictions. I find that liquid, chewable, and powder supplements tend to be, oh, I'm so sorry. There we go. I have not been clicking through these slides. Hopefully you can see that now, the dietary supplements. The liquid, chewable, or powder supplements might be uh, a little bit better tolerated. And I'm just going to go back for one moment so you can see what I was talking about here. The food sources that may prevent the deficiencies, this is the chart uh, here, um, and then the... Uh, common nutrient deficiencies in Crohn's, I think that's where I left you off, so sorry about that. 
So heading back to the dietary supplements, here we go. So multivitamins, you know, quick note about multivitamins. A lot of patients stop taking them because they've read in the media that multivitamins might be a waste of money. Uh, please keep in mind that these studies are not performed on people with digestive issues. They are performed on healthy individuals. They really do not apply to people who are, trouble, who are having trouble absorbing food. And vitamin D. Vitamin D is a supplement that I often recommend. Uh, most of our patients do supplement with it, um, especially here in the Northeast where I'm presenting from because from about November through March, vitamin D, the, the sun is just not strong enough to really synthesize, uh, to allow you to synthesize vitamin D. And low vitamin D is linked to increased risk of a variety of autoimmune diseases and to IBD flares. So definitely, I agree, have your vitamin D levels tested and then determine an appropriate dose. I usually will recommend about 2,000 IUs for maintenance. Uh, especially throughout the winter, um, but some of our patients take as much as 50,000 IUs a week. Obviously, that is a prescription and needs to be discussed with your physician. 800 IUs, as noted on the slide, that is what the Institute of Medicine recommends. Um, they often keep their recommendations a little bit lower, partly because as Americans, if we hear something good for us, we tend to consume a lot of it. And we've already discussed the vitamin B12 supplements uh, and the, the folate as well. Okay, so just some practical recommendations for a healthy diet. Uh, you certainly do want to do your best to consume those calories. I know that this can be really difficult, especially when you're not feeling well. Sometimes just smaller meals, snacks, a little bit more frequently is a little bit better tolerated. But please focus on high-quality, nutritious calories. I have never told anyone to just start eating ice cream or cookies to increase their caloric consumption. That will very likely do more harm than good and not... Uh, really the types of calories that are going to keep us well-nourished. And being well-nourished is essential for a healthy immune system and will help your medications work better. Uh, protein. People with active inflammation do have higher protein needs. So a general rule of thumb is to try to consume about 1, 1 1.3 grams of protein for every kilogram, which is roughly the same as dividing your weight in pounds in half and aiming for that amount of protein. And there will be a slide later on that talks a little bit more about protein. Hydration, absolutely necessary. Please make sure you're drinking enough fluids, primarily water, although sometimes water is not enough to promote rehydration. So you might require a drink with some electrolytes, with some sugar, but please avoid anything too sugary. Uh, things like Gatorade, juice, they, all that sugar tends to draw water into the bowel and cause more diarrhea. So it um, defeats the purpose. So go ahead and dilute these drinks uh, with water. And one way to estimate approximately how much fluid you need is to divide your weight in half, again, your weight in pounds, in half, and aim for that amount of fluid in ounces per day. So in other words, 100-pound female divided by two, 50 pounds, that person can aim for about 50 fluid ounces per day. It's not perfect, but it gives us an idea. All right, so here's a slide on whole grains. And how about we talk first just a little more generally about carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are probably the most misunderstood macronutrient. They include everything from sweet tarts to sweet potatoes. Glucose from carbohydrates is your preferred energy source. Uh, good sources of really healthy carbohydrates can include whole grains, fruits, vegetables, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Whole grains, as you can see here, are particularly a good source of fiber, B vitamins, and certain minerals. 
For those of you who do eat grains, choose whole grains. Uh, for those of you who feel better without grains, just make sure you're eating enough of these other healthy carbohydrate sources to make up for this. Okay, fruits and veggies. I really cannot overemphasize the importance of fruits and vegetables. People who eat fruits and veggies live longer, healthier lives. Um, similar to what Dr. Albenberg is saying, really the, the the best dietary pattern is one that includes mostly real food, and uh, especially a variety of plant foods, especially vegetables. So in addition to providing the vitamins and the minerals and the other nutrients noted here, fruits and veggies provide phytochemicals, which literally help fight inflammation. So yes, we want to aim for about five to nine servings of fruits and veggies per day. Um, I find an easier kind of rule. Uh, I like to think of it as the one, two, three rule, which is to try to eat one kind of vegetable in the morning. Maybe that's some peppers with eggs, maybe it's spinach in a smoothie, two kinds at lunch, and three kinds at dinner. So one, two, three. Makes it a little bit easier than kind of measuring out these half cup or one cup portions. Now, for people with active IPT or at risk of obstructing, you might be thinking, yeah, Colleen, that sounds really great. I'd love to be able to eat all those fruits and vegetables, but they make me feel sick. So in cases of when you're actively flaring, when you're running to the bathroom, if you are at risk of obstructing, just go ahead and cook them, peel them, blend them. Uh, we're not concerned about roughage if it's in a nice, smooth form. All right, so... I promised you a slide on calcium, so here we go. Calcium is important for a number of reasons, uh, including bone health. Uh, that's the one that I think we know, we, we think of calcium um, and bone health. But it's also important for things like blood clotting and muscle contraction. And when we're talking about muscles, we're not just talking about our biceps. We are talking about our organs. We are talking about our heart. Our heart is a muscle, so calcium is really important. And people with IBD are at an increased risk of calcium deficiency, perhaps due to inflammation in the small intestine, maybe due to medications like prednisone and, and proton pump inhibitors, and also possibly due to vitamin D deficiency. So you can take all the calcium in the world, but if you don't have enough vitamin D, it's not going to make a difference. So uh, make sure, again, that those vitamin D levels are tested. And then here you'll see a few sources of calcium. So we think of in this country mostly dairy. Dairy is an excellent source of calcium. For those of you who cannot tolerate dairy, uh, you can also consume dark leafy greens, maybe sardines or salmon with bones, almonds, almond butter, uh, or dairy alternatives such as soy milk, almond milk, rice milk, etc. Uh, if you choose one of those milk alternatives, I just highly encourage you to choose an unsweetened version. All right, so moving along, protein. Um, so protein is as necessary to our bodies as the air that we breathe. It is absolutely critical, and it's very important for healing, particularly after surgery and during periods of active inflammation. It builds, it maintains, and it repairs our, our tissues, our organs, our muscles. So really important for the immune system. And protein is found in both animal products and also plant products, as you can see here and this provides a little bit about serving sizes uh, as well as the food sources. So I recommend aiming for a variety of those. And since we've talked about carbs and protein, let's go ahead and talk about the last macronutrient, which is fat. Fat is critical in keeping our bodies healthy. That does not mean that we should just eat any kind of fat or too much fat. 
So the healthy fats, I'm sure that most of you have heard of the omega-3 fats, so salmon, tuna, uh, sardines, anchovies, herring, also found in walnuts and flaxseed oil, flaxseed, chia seeds, really important uh, anti-inflammatory fats. And for those of you who might take a supplement, just be careful when you look on that label, really check out that EPA and that DHA. Those are the real anti-inflammatory fats. Uh, so if you're aiming for 1,000 milligrams, 2,000 milligrams, go ahead, check the label. Make sure your EPA and your DHA add up to that amount. In addition to the omega-3s, we have our monounsaturated fats, or our MUFAs, also our Mediterranean fats. Uh, I think olive oil, canola oil, nut butters, avocados, hummus, tahini, all those wonderful healthy fats. And as you can see, these fats are all from real healthy food. So if you're consuming real healthy food, you're probably consuming healthy fats. And you don't have to worry as much about those unhealthy fats. So some potential problem foods. Um, so foods with insoluble fiber. So we talked a little bit about fiber tonight. I think it gets a little confusing. There are different types of fiber. When we're talking about insoluble fiber, we're primarily talking about that roughage, the skin seeds. And those can be problematic when people are at risk of obstructing or if you're having chronic diarrhea. Artificial sweeteners, sugar alcohols, uh, they just can cause all kinds of havoc. And they might, they might pose long-term risks beyond just the symptoms of diarrhea, gas, and bloating. Dairy products, uh, partly in many cases due to the lactose, maybe due to the protein. High-fat, greasy foods. I mean, if you want to have diarrhea right after you eat, high-fat, greasy foods is the way to go. Spicy foods or GI irritants. Cruciferous vegetables are the roughage and also they're very gas-producing. They may or may not be problematic. The best thing to do is really work with a knowledgeable nutritionist to help identify your food trigger. I think the best way to start this process is to go ahead and keep a food symptom diary and then review it with someone. If you try to review it, you're going to drive yourself nuts. And uh, just a little quick note about sugar. Most of us consume too much added sugar. It is making us sick. So please be careful consuming too much of this. And sugar is sugar. Honey is sugar. Agave is sugar. Maple syrup is sugar. Um, it can contribute to an imbalance of gut bacteria. Remember, food directly feeds bacteria. We want to promote the growth of good, healthy gut bacteria, not unhealthy, bad bacteria. It can also contribute to quite a bit of digestive upset, and it is inflammatory. So careful, even with those hidden sources of added sugar. A lot of my patients love yogurt. If it's a flavored yogurt, getting more than half of its calories from sugar, that is not a healthy food anymore. So better alternative, plain yogurt and sweeten it with something like a teaspoon of your preferred sweetener. Okay, I'm going to kind of rush through these next slides just because we are, looks like, running out of a bit of time here. But um, the potential foods to eat, okay, during the flare. All right, so diluted juices to stay hydrated. You don't want full juice, too sugary. Smoothies if you, or soup if you need to break down that fiber. Remember that blender will break down that fiber. All of these are pretty kind of low roughage items. Um, but as we've seen earlier today, not everybody in a flare needs to be on a super low fiber diet. We have to figure out what types of fiber work best for you. And of course, we want to make sure you're meeting your protein needs with chicken, turkey, fish, eggs if you eat meat, um, and then also, or animal products, and then also if you eat plant products, maybe some nut butters. Nut butters are a great example of how you break down that fiber to make these smooth. And then just some examples of popular diets. 
we've gone over this. There's not one perfect diet for every for anybody. If you're going to try one of these bad diets, please work with someone who knows about it. I've worked with plenty of people who have done very well with specific carbohydrate diet when done right. I worked with just as many who have not done well with it also when done right. So I'm sure everyone's trying to offer advice to you about what you should be eating. Just let them know that not everybody is the same. So what works for one person might not work for the, the next person. The specific carbohydrate diet is noted here as is the paleo on the next slide. Those are very similar diets. The low FODMAP diet, I love it for gas, bloating, and diarrhea, especially for people with irritable bowel syndrome, uh, not necessarily active IBD. So again, just go ahead and talk with someone who's really knowledgeable of these different, about these different diets. Okay. And then, uh, again, nothing's been proven. Um, let's see here. Again, just jumping through for the sake of time. As far as restaurant meals and holiday eating and with Thanksgiving coming up, mostly with restaurant meals, I would say pay attention more so to your eating behavior. Eating behavior is absolutely key. We have not talked about that. There are so many foods that people can tolerate if they eat it in a small amount and they chew it well and they're well hydrated. Large portions, eating too quickly, that can wreak all kinds of GI distress. So really pay extra attention to your eating behavior as well as your posture. If you are hunched over a desk, it's going to be very challenging for your GI tract to do what it needs to do. With restaurant dining, go ahead, read the, read the menus before you get there. Maybe call the restaurant. Uh, I think one of the best things to do when you're there is ask to just be the last person to order. That way, your friends, family go about their own business. They don't need to listen to what you're doing. And your order is the last thing that that waiter or waitress remembers. Obviously, alcohol, coffee can be major GI irritants. You might even want to bring a snack with you just in case uh, the restaurant doesn't have something that you want. And the plainer, more bland the food, likely the better tolerated. And holidays and celebrations, same thing. Go have a good time, but do know your limits. Do pay attention to that eating behavior. And uh, if you're going to a friend's house, maybe just offer to bring something. And uh, that way, you at least know that you have something that you can eat. So really important um, to work with a gastroenterologist who is not who can at least appreciate the role that nutrition plays in manage in really managing IBD and also a nutritionist or dietitian who's very knowledgeable about this disease and together uh, you can optimize your nutrition improve healing etc the bottom line healthy eating is incredibly important and what is especially oh goodness it's just all right, my, here we go. Sorry, my computer's acting up a little bit, but this is my last slide. Healthy eating is really, really, really important. And uh, what's super rewarding about using food and nutrition to manage your IBD is that what you do to eat, when you're eating healthy, you're also protecting yourself against all kinds of other chronic issues. And that concludes my presentation. Thank you so much to our speakers for this informative presentation. Now it's time for the question and answer part of our program. For everyone's benefit, please keep your questions general without many personal details and related to the topic so we can provide an answer that is general in nature. You are always welcome to contact the IBD Help Center if, with other questions. If you are joining us by web, simply type in your question in the question and answer box and hit submit. 
Our first question is from Kyle. And Kyle wants to know, what are your thoughts on supplemental protein like whey isolate to support higher intake and provide antioxidant protection? Colleen, would you like to field that one first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so as far as supplemental protein goes, in many cases, it can be quite useful, especially for people who maybe have a lot of dietary restrictions and cannot get their protein from food. My first choice always is through food. Um, but if, like I said, you do require that, that supplement, it makes you feel a little bit better, if it's the only way that you're getting that added protein, then I would just be careful with what protein powder you use. Uh, whey protein isolate is fine um, for people who can tolerate you know, dairy, but definitely check the other ingredients because in many cases they have a lot of those additives that Dr. Albenberg was talking about that we don't know how those affect our immune system, and they also tend to have a lot of sugar. And if they taste sweet and they don't have a lot of sugar, they probably have artificial sweeteners, and we really don't know what, what that does to our body. Dr. Albenberg, do you have anything to add? I totally agree. I um, really promote uh, protein from whole foods as opposed to supplemental protein. I, you know, I don't think supplemental protein is harmful, but I do think it's probably better to get it from uh, whole food sources. Thank you. Our next question is from Bill, and Bill wants to know, are vitamin deficiencies assessed through blood tests? Dr. Albenberg, would you like to field that? Sure. So, yes. So the vast majority of vitamin deficiencies that we look for in patients who have IBD, are they, they are assessed through blood tests. So, um, you know, it's really dependent on the patient and the location of disease. But depending on the patient and the location of disease, there are different vitamin deficiencies that we think about. So, for example, in a patient who has severe disease of the terminal ileum, I will frequently check uh, B12 levels. So, depending on the patient, the location of the disease, there's different vitamins that we will check through blood work at the patient's routine evaluation. Thank you. Our next question is from Jennifer, and Jennifer would like to know, are there foods recommended that should be avoided during a flare? So I can sure. start with this one. Um, so it is incredibly, again, patient-specific and also dependent on the location of disease. And so what I, I really recommend in my patients that they actually just really listen to their bodies. And um, I also think that uh, journaling or keeping a food diary can be helpful to determine uh, what what foods are leading to increased symptoms in that particular patient during a flare. Um, you know, generally we think that the foods that in that are higher in uh, you know sort of like the roughage, the insoluble fiber, may be more difficult to tolerate during a flare, but there may be others depending on the patient and the location of disease. Yeah, and the one thing that I would just add to that, and I agree with the food diary and you know, really listening to your body support. And the other thing I just add is that I, I really don't think the recommendations uh, for eating during a flare and during remission are really that different. You know, we always want a healthy diet. We always want a diet with mostly real, healthy, whole food that's very limited in processed foods, very limited in added sugar. 
very much the same diet that we recommend for everybody. The difference with the flare is, you know, of course, if fiber is an issue or you are at risk for obstructing, of course you want to go ahead and break those foods down. And then to Dr. Albenberg's point, sometimes you might have your own personal sensitivities. But uh, at the end of the day, they're, they're really quite similar recommendations. Yeah, I totally agree. Bruce wants to know, uh, why is the U.S. and enteral nutrition not a first-line therapy as it is in England and other countries? So that is an excellent question. Um, I, uh, you know, and I, I don't really know the answer. I mean, it de we do know for sure that enteral nutritional therapy works for certain patients with Crohn's. Um, there have been studies that have looked at, you know, why it's not prescribed more in the U.S., and it's really, it seems to be prescriber barrier, provider barrier. So the physician or the medical care team, it's not something that they're comfortable with. It's not something that they were trained to use. They don't have the resources on their team, like the nurses to do and the dietitians to do teaching. Um, so, and I think there's a general perception, particularly in the adult world, that adult patients won't want to do this therapy, that they won't find it palatable. And so, you know, I think, I, I do think uh, it's a problem, actually. Um, you know, we use quite a bit of nutritional therapy in our pediatric patients with great success, and there have been many studies that have shown success in adults as well, but uh, you know, you're exactly right. We just we don't see it used as much in the U.S., and I, I, I think that that needs to change. And I also think we need to really figure out how enteral nutritional therapy works so that we can develop diets that are uh, less restrictive but have a similar effect. Helene, do you have anything to add? Nope. Well, the next question is from Alyssa, and she wants to know, what is known about the GAPS diet in helping with IBD? So the GAPS diet, my understanding is that it's derived from the specific carbohydrate diet. Um, there, there are no studies in the scientific literature looking at uh, the effectiveness of the GAPS diet in IBD there are a few very small studies in the literature on the specific carbohydrate diet, but these are studies that include only seven to ten patients. Um, and so I, I think we really we need better studies to, to better understand these diets. I know that there are uh, trials going on looking at the specific carbohydrate diet uh, and possibly the GAPS diet too, I'm not sure, around the country. Um, I feel very similarly to Colleen. I have had patients who have had success with the specific carbohydrate diet. I have had many patients who have not had success with the specific carbohydrate diet. And I also have had patients on exclusion diets who have a lot of difficulty with weight gain and, uh, you know, maintaining adequate nutrition. So any any diet really needs to be closely monitored by a dietitian who has experience with IBD. And also, I think you need to closely monitor your endpoint. So if I have a patient who says, um, you know, I really want to try the specific carbohydrate diet and I feel like it's appropriate and that patient, uh, you know, is in a position where I think it, it's safe, 
then you just have to reassess. So after six weeks of the diet, you have to check blood work, check the fecal calprotectin, maybe do a scope and get real evidence as to whether or not the diet is working. And so I think that that goes for any diet. You can't just go on a diet with very little scientific evidence without really closely following with a dietitian and a physician and making sure that it's working not just based on how you're feeling, but also based on healing of the tissue. Yeah, I agree. And I also think it's really important. What did you eat before you went on this diet? So for some people who I've worked with where the specific specific carbohydrate diet has worked really well for them, to be honest, they were eating a pretty unhealthy American diet before they started. So here they went from eating all these highly processed foods to eating a really clean diet, and it worked. And I'm not so sure that's because they were they needed to be as restrictive as they were, or if it's just because they started eating healthy. So if you're considering really vamping, revamping your diet, first just just go for the healthy approach first, and see if that makes a difference. And then if you're still eating a beautiful diet and you're still feeling really lousy and you want to consider one of these, by all means, but certainly do it under the guidance of someone who's familiar with these diets. Thank you. Uh, Cassiria would like to know, um, do you have suggestions for foods to eat if you have a stricture and are awaiting surgery? So in patients who have strictures and are awaiting surgery, I think that that is a great question, and I really think um, really soft kind of liquidy foods. I think this is the situation where supplemental formulas uh, in that medical food category can be really helpful, and also uh, blending things like vegetable soups and fruit smoothies, um, like Colleen was mentioning. So, uh, you know, strictures are quite problematic and can lead to significant symptoms. And what you don't want to happen is to have an obstruction while you're waiting for surgery. So I really think uh, a soft diet and uh, still a healthy diet, a soft diet can be a healthy diet. Um, you just have to make modifications to your typical diet, uh, you know, cooking things and blending things. And you might also need to add in a formula. But I also think this is a great situation where a dietitian would be helpful to make sure that, you know, you never want to go into a surgery in a poor nutritional state. So this is a great situation where a dietitian could be helpful um, to make sure that nutritionally you're in a good place before surgery. Yeah, I mean, the only, the only, I 100% agree, definitely soft food diet. Um, for people maybe who, where they're not necessarily having upcoming surgery, but maybe they've just had a history of obstructing and they really, they're still eating a little bit more of a normal diet, but keeping things soft. That's where that eating behavior plays such an important role. That's usually the first thing I'll review with someone. It's really chewing your food. It's amazing how easy it is not to do that. And I know I'm guilty of that. But chewing food, eating small portions, you know, I had a patient, speaking of bananas, you know, normally a ripe banana is a fairly safe food. I did have a patient obstruct on bananas, but he ate three bananas in 10 minutes. That's very different than one banana. Really just that mindful mindful eating and, and eating behavior. Thank you, Colleen and Dr. Albenberg, for your insightful presentation and answers to our questions. If your questions were not answered, you can call CCFA's IBD Help Center Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time at 888-694-8872. A recording of today's webcast will be placed on CCFA's website within the next two weeks. 
you will receive an update once it's available. Upon exiting today's webcast, you will be prompted to complete a brief program survey. We ask that you please take a few minutes to provide your responses as your feedback is extremely important to us as we plan future educational activities. Your participation in the webinar is a great start to learning to manage inflammatory bowel disease, and there are many other ways Crohn's, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation can help. Our IBD Help Center, as I mentioned, is open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and you can reach them at 888-694-8872, via email at info at ccfa.org, or you can chat online with an information specialist directly via answer chat at www.ccfa.org. If you'd like to watch our other educational webcast on IBD, please visit the website shown on the screen to explore other IBD-related topics. You can also connect to other IBD patients through the CCFA Community website at www.ccfacommunity.org or by joining a support group or our Power of Two peer-to-peer -peer mentor program. GI Buddy is an online tracking tool and mobile application that has everything you need to stay on top of managing your inflammatory bowel disease. Visit www.ccfa.org for more information. You can also participate in our educational events by contacting your local chapter, again, at the CCFA website. Another resource is CCFA Partners. This patient-powered research network includes web-based surveys that allow patients to easily participate in research, become citizen scientists, and gain access tools to help them manage their disease. Become a part of this network today. If you are looking for fun, family-friendly activities to raise mission-critical funds for CCFA, please sign up for Team Challenge, full or half marathons, or take steps at a walk near you. Visit the websites that are listed. Before exiting tonight's program, please remember to complete the program evaluation. Finally, we want to extend a special thank you to Genentech, Shire, Intera Health, and Sigma Tau for the support of the program tonight. On behalf of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, thank you for joining us. Goodbye. <laughs>